Well, good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. <clears throat> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December the 1st, <clears throat> 335th day of the year. Just 30 days remain till this year is over with. And we do it all over again. Holidays observances. It's National Christmas Lights Day. National Eat a Red Apple Day. National Bartender Day. Day Without Art Day. Faux Fur Friday. Wear a Dress Day. National Cookie Cutter Day. World AIDS Day. Blue Christmas. Uh, let's see. Gift of Scythe Month. Operation Santa Paws. Do something nice for your pet. Worldwide Food Service Safety Month. National Write a Business Plan Month. National Tie Month. National Pear Month. We just gave nine boxes of pears to various doctors we deal with. Universal Human Rights Month. And let's see what else. Alrighty. In 800 A.D., councils convened in the Vatican which Charlemagne is to judge the accusations against Pope Leo III. Even God's spokesman can be accused of wrongdoing. 1420, Henry V of England enters Paris alongside his father-in-law, King Charles VI of France. 1577, Cartier's uh, Christopher Hatton and Thomas in the age here, knighted by Queen Elizabeth I of England. 1640, end of the Iberian Union. Portugal proclaimed acclaims as king while the fourth of Portugal, ending 59 years of personal union of the crowns of Portugal and uh, Spain and end of the rule of the Philippine dynasty. 1662, diarist John Evelyn records skating on the frozen lake at St. James Park in London, watched by Charles II and Queen Catherine. 1768, former slave ship Friedensborg sinks off Tromoya in Norway. 1821, Jose Nunez de Caceres wins the independence of the Dominican Republic from Spain and names the new territory the Republic of Spanish Haiti. 1822, Pedro I is crowned Emperor of Brazil. Yes, emperor, uh, Brazil had an emperor uh, for quite some time, even after the civil, Irish Civil War. He opened a door to all uh, former Confederate soldiers who wanted to move there, gave them land. 1824, U.S. presidential election. Since no candidate got a majority of the total electoral college votes in the election, U.S. House of Representatives is given a job of deciding the winner in accordance with the uh, 12th Amendment of the uh, United States Constitution and the 
Let's see. Andrew Jackson from Tennessee. Um, his running mate was John C. Calhoun. He got 99 electoral votes versus John Quincy Adams' 84. Henry Clay got 37. And William Crawford got 41. Eighteen twenty-eight, Argentine general Juan Lavelle makes a coup against Governor Manuel Dariego, beginning the Decembrist Revolution. Eighteen thirty-four, slavery is abolished in the Cape Colony in accordance with the Slavery Abolition Act of eighteen thirty-three. Eighteen sixty-two, in his State of the Union address, President Lincoln reaffirms the necessity of ending slavery as ordered uh, ten weeks earlier in the Emancipation Proclamation. 1865, Shaw University, the first historically black university in the southern U.S., is founded in Raleigh, North Carolina. 1878, President Rutherford B. Hayes gets the first telephone installed in the White House. I think the first call was a collect call. Selling magazines. 1900, Nicaragua sells canal rights to the U.S. for $5 million. Canal Agreement fails in March of 1901. Great Britain rejects the amended treaty. 1913, Buenos Aires Metro, the first underground railway system in the Southern Hemisphere in Latin America, begins operation on this date. Also in 1913, in Crete, having obtained self-rule from Turkey after the First Balkan War, is annexed by Greece. 1918, Transylvania unites with Romania following the incorporation of Bessarabia on March 27th in Bukovina on November 28th, and thus concluding the Great Union, as it was called. Also in 1918, Iceland becomes a sovereign state, but it does remain a part of uh, the Danish kingdom. Uh, 1918, the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, later known as the kingdom of Yugoslavia, is proclaimed. 1919, Lady Astor becomes the first female member of Parliament to take her seat in the House of Commons of the United Kingdom. She was elected November 28 to that position. 1924, the National Hockey League's first United States-based franchise, the Boston Bruins, plays their first game in league play at home at the still uh, extant Boston Arena indoor hockey facility. 1934, Sergei Kirov is assassinated, paving way for the repressive Great Purge and Vinnytsia is a massacre by General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin. 1939, World War II. The day after the beginning of the Winter War in Finland, the Kahander III cabinet resigns and is replaced by the Righty I cabinet while the Finnish parliament moved from Helsinki to Kauhaveoki to escape the Soviet airstrikes. 1941, World War II, Emperor Hirohito of Japan gives his tacit approval to the decision of the Imperial Council to initiate war against the U.S. Now, also in 1941, World War II, Fiorello LaGuardia, mayor of New York City and director of the Office of Civil Defense, signs Administrative Order No. 9, creating the Civil Air Patrol. 
1952, New York Daily News reports the news of Christine Jorgensen, first notable case of sex reassignment surgery. 1955, the American Civil Rights Movement in Montgomery, Alabama, seamstress Loza Parks refused to give up her bus seat to a white man as arrested for violating the city's racial segregation laws. This leads to the city's bus boycott. And what I've heard and read since, this was uh, allegedly staged. I never heard that. Um, I spent a lot of time in Alabama and Georgia and never heard anything about that until... Oh, it's been less than 10 years I heard it was staged. 1958, the Central African Republic attained self-rule within the French Union. Also in 1958, the Our Lady of Angels School Fire Chicago kills 92 children and three nuns. 1959, the Cold War, opening date for signature of the Antarctic Treaty, which sets aside Antarctica as a scientific preserve and bans military activity on the continent. 1960, Patrice Lumumba is arrested by Mobutu Sese Seko's men on the banks of the Sankaru River for inciting the army to rebellion. 1963, Nagaland becomes the 16th state of India. 1964, Vietnam War. President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, and his top-ranking advisors meet to discuss plans to bomb North Vietnam. 1969 in Vietnam, the first draft lottery in the United States has held since World War II. Yes, I was told my number was 96. I was 92, and they were going to call through 96. So I signed my contract to ROTC to be commissioned, and they stopped at 90. Nineteen seventy-one. Cambodian Civil War. Khmer Rouge and rebels intensify assault on Cambodian government positions, forcing their retreat from Kampong Tamar and nearby Barai. Also in 71, the purge of Croatian Spring leader starts in Yugoslavia at the meeting of the League of Communists at the uh, Karol Dodevo estate. 1973, Papua New Guinea gained self-government from Australia. 1974, TWA Flight 514. The Boeing 727 crashes northwest of Dulles International Airport. Killed on only two people on board. Uh, 1974, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 6231, another Boeing 727. Crashed northwest of John F. Kennedy International Airport. 1981. In Exadria, Avio Promet Flight 1308, McDonnell Douglas MD-80 crashes in Corsica. Killed all 180 people on board. 1984, NASA conducts the controlled impact demonstration where an airline is deliberately crashed in order to test technologies and gather data to help improve survivability of crashes. 1988, World AIDS Day is proclaimed worldwide by the UN member states. 1988, Salbenazir Bhutto, named as the Prime Minister of Pakistan, becoming the first female leader to lead a Muslim nation. 1989, the Philippine coup attempt. Right-wing military rebel reform the armed forces movement attempts to oust Philippine President Corazon Aquino in a failed bloody coup d'etat. 
Also, in 1989, in the Cold War, East Germany's uh, parliament had abolishes the constitutional provision granting the Communist Party the leading role in the state. 1990, channel tunnel section started uh, from the UK and France meet beneath the seabed. 1991, Cold War, Ukrainian voters overwhelmingly approve a referendum for independence from the Soviet Union. 1997, in the Indian state of Bahir, Ranveer Sina attacks the CPI, Party Unity, um, stronghold um, Lakshman Purbathi, killing uh, 63 lower caste people. 1997, the 1997 He School shooting in West Paducah, Kentucky, takes place. In 2000, Vincent Fox Casada is inaugurated as the President of Mexico marking the first peaceful transfer of executive federal power to an opposing political party following a free and democratic election in Mexico's history. Um, 2001, the United Russia political parties founded. 2005, as a result of the merger of the Perm Oblast and the Komi Permyak Autonomous Okrung, a new subject of the Russian Federation, the, the Perm Cry was created. 2006, the law on same-sex marriage came into force in South Africa for the first time on the African continent. 2009, the Treaty of Lisbon entered into force in the European Union. That's an international agreement that amends the two treaties that form the constitutional basis of the European Union. The Treaty of Lisbon was signed by all the EU member states. Prominent changes included the move from unanimity to qualified majority voting in at least 45 policy areas in the Council of Ministers. 2011, the Alma-Ata Metro is open. Uh, it was open in Almaty, Kazakhstan. 2018, the old, the Ulu police informed the public about the first offense of the much larger child sexual exploitation in Ulu, Finland. 2019, Arsenal women, 11 to 1 Bristol City women, breaks the record for most goals scored in a FA Women's Super League match with Vivian Madima involved in 10 of the 11 Arsenal goals. 2019, the outbreak of coronavirus infection begins in Wuhan. And in 2020, the Arecibo telescope collapsed. It was um, 1,000 foot spherical reflector radio telescope built into a natural sinkhole at the Arecibo Observatory located near Arecibo in Puerto Rico. A cable mount steerable receiver and several radar transmitters for emitting signals were mounted. Uh, 492 feet above the dish. It was the largest single aperture telescope for 53 years until it was uh, surpassed in uh, July of 2016 by the uh, 500 meter aperture spherical telescope in Gazhao, China. It was used primarily for research in radio astronomy, atmospheric science, and radar astronomy. 
those for programs uh, that search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, we can't even find intelligence here, and we're looking for it out there. All right, well, there's been a lot of um, news coming out of the Middle East. Um, not all of it have I had the chance to review yet. The... Um, There's been a number of um, mass shootings, and there was an attempt at a uh, at mass shootings in uh, Jerusalem. Guy was going to shoot up everybody on a bus, but he got in a gunfight at the at the bus stop and got taken out. Um, of all the places, I would want to try to do a mass shooting. Jerusalem or any place within the um, orbit of the IDF uh, would not be my first choice. The um, There's a lot of um, well, shall we say uproar going on about uh, the pro-Palestinian position of a lot of our Ivy League colleges. Um, see, the problem is, and this was going on back when I was in college, a lot of the professors are so liberal and it's unbelievable. If they even suspect you're conservative, you get knocked down a grade. It's just something that uh, it seems to be fostered by the Ivy, uh, Ivy League colleges. Well, we're going to do our last day of the Kennedy murders. And it's, um, you know, the... the the assassination of the president wasn't just the killing of the president. There were a whole lot of other peripheral deaths that took place. Um, I've got a transcript of a tape that was sent to me by a contract CIA agent that Oswald, that came back from Russia, wasn't the Oswald that went. He had many, many stories and conspiracies and surrounding Kennedy's assassination. I've got a new book that's going to be coming out. Uh, I've been very remiss getting back to writing, but there's been so much going on. Well, we're going to start out talking about the death of Guy Bannister, who was a private investigator. Died of a heart attack. Immediately ruled natural causes. He was the former head of the FBI Chicago office, a rabid anti-communist, anti-Castroist, developed a huge and intricate filing system on communist activities, and when he died, amazingly, his entire file system vanished. It was thought to have been seized by 
unknown authorities. Now, there are no immediate inconsistencies in his death, except for the virtually impossible coincidence that every witness connected to the Guy Bannister aspect of the case, including Bannister himself, died just prior to being uh, sought for the investigation of their connections to Lee Harvey Oswald. And, you know, once again, I go back to the, the James Bond theory. Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. Now, Bannister is a key link in the Kennedy assassination. And he was closely associated with two of the other key players, David Ferry and New Orleans Mafia boss Carlos Marcello. Ferry actually worked for him, uh, for Marcello as a pilot and for Bannister as a private investigator. Now, in 1963, Bannister and Ferry began working for the lawyer, G. Ray Gill, and his client, Carlos Marcello. Later, Bannister was linked to the plot to assassinate Kennedy. Um, it was in August of 63 that uh, Oswald distributed leaflets that supported the Fidel Castro and his government in Cuba. And on his leaflets was the address, 544 Camp Street in New Orleans. It was the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And this was also the office of Carlos Fringier, an anti-Castro exile. Now, if you went to that address, it led investigators to Guy Bannister because his detective agency was virtually part of that same office, technically around the corner at a different street address, but in the same building and right next door. And it's raised suspicion Oswald been involved in a right-wing conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Now, Jack Martin was a private investigator employed by Bannister, eventually confided to District Attorney Jim Garrison during his investigation. He said, Martin told friends that um, Bannister and Ferry had been involved with the assassination of Kennedy, and according to Martin, Ferry was a, the getaway man whose job it was to fly the assassin out of Texas. And he also claimed that Ferry knew Lee Harvey Oswald from their days in the New Orleans Civil Air Patrol and had given him lessons on how to use a rifle with a telescopic sight. Now, Ferry was actually... Oswald's instructor in the New Orleans Civil Air Patrol. And Ferry became a very popular witness, sought for interviews by the FBI and, and then uh, by Jim Garrison. November 25th, three days after the assassination, um, Jack Martin was contacted by the FBI. He told him he thought Ferry had hypnotized Oswald into assassinating Kennedy. Ferry was known to be an accomplished hypnotist. Um, that information eventually reached Garrison, District Attorney in New Orleans. He interviewed Jack Martin about these accusations, and Martin claimed that during the uh, summer of 1963, um, Garrison became convinced that a group of right-wing activists, including Bannister, David Ferry, Carlos Bingier, and Clay Shaw, were involved in a conspiracy with the CIA to kill Kennedy. Garrison claimed this was in retaliation for his attempt to obtain a peace settlement with Cuba and Vietnam. Keep in mind that the war in Vietnam made millionaires out of a lot of people involved in uh, gun running and various other aspects. 
That's why we've had so many wars, because our leaders uh, make a fortune. Now, the next Bruton Oswald and Bannister have been thoroughly established by many others. It wasn't just a matter of Oswald's pamphlets having been stored in Bannister's office. Lisa, and that's what uh, the Warren Commission, uh, they tried to discount that connection, put it only to the fact that it was a storage facility. Oswald had been in Bannister's office and been seen in Bannister's company, and the two quite obviously knew each other. Delphine Roberts worked for Bannister and later became his mistress. She told Anthony Summers during the summer of 63, Oswald worked for Bannister. Said she was in the office when Bannister suggested Oswald should establish a local fair play for Cuba committee. And her daughter, who met Oswald during that period, told much the same story. Former FBI agent and author William Turner uh, was at first skeptical of those who noted the convenient deaths associated with the Kennedy assassination witnesses. But eventually, even he was convinced by the impossible series of coincidences. The um, He went to Garrison's office uh, discussing the, the deaths of Bannister and Ward and Catlin. In his mind, uh, he said he played back in his mind a story in Ramparts magazine on the mysterious death theory of Texas uh, editor Penn Jones Jr. and mysterious death article fascinated Walter Cronkite to the point he sent a film crew to Midlothian for a CBS News series on Jones. And although that theory caught on as evidence of a conspiracy, it was never definitive. The untimely deaths of Bannister and others gave everyone calls that tried to discount it. And in addition to Bannister and Ward and Gatlin, uh, there was the extremely convenient death of David Ferry. He was considered a key piece of the JFK assassination puzzle by uh, District Attorney Garrison. Well, Bannister was already dead by the time Garrison figured out the Oswald-Bannister connection, but it's interesting to note that right after Bannister died, somebody ransacked his office and stole all his files. And that would have been a major operation, moving those files. It was a massive um, setup. After Bannister's death, Jack Martin, who'd been one of Bannister's private investigators, was uh, visibly nervous when uh, District Attorney Garrison asked about the connections to the assassination. Well, he also um, subpoenaed David Ferry to testify. And Ferry made it quite clear that uh, it was pretty much a death warrant for him. According to Martin, David Ferry practically lived at Bannister's office. Well, not only was Bannister uh, dead, whether murder or uh, I remember, we got the uh, the heart attack gun that uh, came out in testimony. It was created by the FBI. Well, 
Everybody who was sought in relation to Bannister, his affiliation, became the recipient of a sudden death. Hugh Ward, who was Bannister's private investigator, Des Lesseps Morrison, who was the mayor of New Orleans, Maurice Gatlin, an attorney who was legal counsel to the far-right Minutemen, group with which Bannister was associated. And then, of course, we have David Ferry. Died suddenly at the exact same time he's being sought as an extremely important witness by Jim Garrison's investigation. And yet, all these deaths were discounted as natural causes. Well, the next two have to be considered together because they died together. was Hugh Ward, private investigator, and Des Lesseps Morrison, mayor of New Orleans. So apparently position was no safeguard. It's being taken out. Now, they killed in a plane crash. Official verdict, immediately stamped accident. And inconsistencies... The primary one in this case is the virtually impossible coincidence that every witness connected to the same aspect of the case died just prior to their being brought into uh, the investigation by District Attorney Jim Garrison. Now, Hugh Ward worked directly with two people at the main nucleus of the Kennedy assassination, Guy Bannister and David Ferry. Bannister and Ferry were at the nexus of events that set up the assassination of Kennedy and setup of Oswald as the apparent assassin. I would point out even though we've been inundated with reports of Oswald being the assassin, never proven, never indicted, never officially charged in court. The police arrested him supposedly for the murder of Tippett. And then they added Kennedy. This Lessons Morrison was the mayor of New Orleans who was uh, involved in a large number of dealings. As we can note, New Orleans was in many ways the center staging location for the assassination in Dallas. His home base to mafia boss Carlos Marcello, David Ferry, Dr. Mary Sherman, and Lee Harvey Oswald himself. And although not much is known about the deaths of New Orleans Mayor Desalessops and Morrison and uh, Hugh Ward, it's known the Incredibly uncanny deaths of several key witnesses certainly stretches uh, incredulity to a fair-minded investigator. Significance of uh, those conveniently disappearing witnesses wasn't lost on uh, District Attorney Garrison or former FBI agent William Turner, who was on Garrison's staff. As Turner noted in his very interesting book, Review Mirror, all roads investigating Lee Harvey Oswald led to Guy Bannister. And everyone connected to the, the two of them seemed to have died uh, untimely deaths. Now, an experienced FBI agent like Turner focused on the key players when he became an investigator for District Attorney Garrison. The... Um, It was he that discovered uh, the 
interesting thing about the addresses on uh, Bannister's uh, office. Because the the building that had the uh, the address for Fair Play for the Cuba Committee was on one side on one of the streets that intersected, and Garrison's office, I mean uh, Bannister's office, was on the other side of the building. And Turner said when he reported the discovery to Garrison, he recommended they assign priority to interviewing Bannister. Well. Bannister had been found dead in his bed in June of 1964. Interestingly enough, his pearl-handled monogrammed 357 Magnum revolver was by his side. And although there was never an autopsy done, his death was attributed to heart attack. Now, the fact there was no autopsy raises some interesting questions as well. But uh, Jerry Milton Brooks, who'd done some clipping and filing for Bannister in 62, had identified his deputies. Hugh Ward is also belonging to the Minutemen, as well as an outfit, outfit called the Anti-Communism League of the Caribbean, which was headed by, of all people, Guy Bannister, after he came to New Orleans in 1955. Brooks credited the Anti-Communist Communism League of the Caribbean with helping the CIA overthrow the leftist Arbenz government in Guatemala and opened the way for a succession of rightist strongmen, as they were called. Turner also noted with a great deal of concern that every witness he saw in connection to Bannister had already been eliminated from the landscape. In other words, they were all dead. There was a chance that Ward would be willing to talk, but it turned out uh, he was dead as well. May 23, 1965, he was at the controls of a Piper Aztec chartered by former New Orleans Mayor Deslesette Morrison when the craft crashed in on a fog-shrouded hill near Ciudad Victoria in Mexico. Killed everybody on board. That left Maurice Book, Brooks Gatlin, <coughs> excuse me, an attorney associated with Bannister on Brooks's list of key Minutemen in Louisiana. And according to Brooks, Gatlin served as legal counsel to the ACLC as well. Mike Brooks had been kind of a protege of Gatlin. Attorney's passport was stamped with visas for countries around the world. And in Brooks's estimation, he was a transporter for the CIA. One occasion, Gatlin uh, told Brooks, I have pretty good connections. Stick with me and I'll give you a license to kill. Well, Brooks became a firm believer in 1962 when Gatlin just played a thick wad of bills, saying he had $100,000 of CIA money earmarked for a French reactionary clique planning to assassinate General de Gaulle. And as such, an assassination attempt was made. Shortly after that, uh, Gatlin flew to Paris, and after that became uh, the secret army organization's abortive ambush of the French president. And that's the assassination attempt I was talking about. Well, by the time Garrison started looking for Gatlin, it was too late. In 64, he fell and was pushed from the sixth floor of the Panama Hotel in Panama. City Panama. Died instantly. Well, in regard to the airplane crash, 
They headed south, no weather worsened. By 6 p.m., pockets of rainstorms dotted the area, and Ward had to detour his course slightly to avoid running into thunderheads. He was a capable pilot, with plenty of fuel on board to divert to his uh, route of flight as needed. Important point is that uh, Craig Roberts, an extremely capable pilot, too very qualified to make the determination, said very clearly Ward was a capable pilot. It wasn't inexperienced that brought the plane down. But something did go wrong. The Aztec, flying south on instruments along the Gulf Coast, was heard flying somewhere above our ranch hands at uh, La Guadalote Ranch, east of Ciudad Victoria. And then the engine sounds changed as it flew overhead. According to the ranch hands, the engines began to sputter and cough as the plane uh, circled, looking for a way down through the clouds. Fifteen minutes later, the Aztec broke out through the low overcast and slammed into the ground, skipped and skidded 200 feet to the edge of a small gorge. And by the time the rescuers could get to the wreckage, there was nobody left to rescue. The unusual factor in this particular accident is that both engines failed at the same time with over three hours of usable fuel still on board. Sounds to me like sabotage. But whatever it was, two more witnesses bit the dust. Then we got Maurice Gatlin, attorney and legal counsel of the Minutemen, a close associate of Guy Bannister. Another heart attack and a fall from a six-story balcony. Official determination, natural causes. Let's not even worry about the CIA's heart attack gun. While attending a meeting of the Inter-American Bar Association in San Juan, Puerto Rico, he reportedly suffered a heart attack and then fell over the ledge of a six-floor balcony. Nobody's sure exactly how that happened, and there's no other information that could be gained. He was another key witness sought by the investigation of District Attorney Jim Garrison. Now, Gatlin was a well-connected attorney who was a rabid anti-communist in league with the private investigator Bannister and number of others associated with uh, the anti-Castro efforts. He became legal counsel to the Minutemen, an extremely conservative group that was being investigated by uh, Jim Garrison because it also had links to the Kennedy assassination. In addition to his association with Guy Bannister, um, a man linked by many to the plotting of the assassination as well as the setting up of Lee Harvey Oswald, Gatlin was also linked to others who've been mentioned as playing roles in the murder of Kennedy. Also involved with the covert dealings of longtime CIA agent E. Howard Hunt and Mafia boss Carlos Marcello. Hunt had extensive connections to organized crime, especially the national syndicate said they'd been run by Seymour Weiss of the Standard Fruit Company, which was the sponsor of the Guatemala coup, and Mafia kingpin Carlos Marcello. In 1958, Hunt organized an anti-communist conference in Guatemala. Conference chairman was Antonio Valadores, Marcello's attorney in New Orleans. Also present at the meeting was Maurice Gatlin, whose office uh, at 544 Camp Street was uh, a base of operations for the Kennedy assassination. It was Gatlin who served as bagman for Bannister, Clay Shaw, and the CIA when the the transporter carried a suitcase of $100,000 in cash to Paris for the OAS um, 
That money was used by the organization to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. One of the many attempts the right-wing uh, group of former French army and foreign le legion officers made against the French president's life. And Jerry Brooks, a former Minuteman who worked for Bannister, said that Maurice Gatlin often bragged about his dual life. He, as I said earlier, he once told uh, Brooks, I had pretty good connections. Stick with me and I'll give you a license to kill. Gatlin, due to his movements as a transporter for the CIA and his intimate knowledge of the going zone at 544 Camp Street, uh, clearly became a liability in someone's mind. May of 64, before it could be located by the Warren Commission, he was pushed or jumped from the sixth floor of the El Panama Hotel in Panama City, Panama. Been to that hotel. We looked at it in full perspective. Uh, the words of uh, former FBI agent William Turner uh, seem rather appropriate. But for the untimely deaths of Bannister, Ward, and Gatlin, uh, the idea that somebody was systematically eliminating people who knew too much would not have gained as much of a toehold as it did. Well, now let's turn to Earlene Roberts. Her name has come up before. She was the landlady at the rooming house in Dallas where Lee Harvey Oswald lived. She's the one that said the uh, police car pulled up out front and honked the horn and Oswald left immediately. Well, she had another heart attack. She was so harassed by authorities, her relatives believed her health was ruined by it. Even if her heart attack was from natural causes, it was still caused by her relationship to the Kennedy assassination. But if, in fact, it was the CIA's heart attack gun, well, that puts a different swing on things. Well, she was a nurse. When she became diabetic, gave up her nursing career and began running out rooms at her house in the old cliff section of Dallas. She was a very intelligent, very confident woman and described by everyone who knew her as a very good witness. October 14, 1963, she rented one of the rooms in her home to Lee Harvey Oswald, but under a different name. He rented the name under the rented the room under the name of O.H. Lee, which has shown up a number of other times. Now, Roberts was a very important witness. Authorities weren't happy when, with what she had to say. She testified a friend had called her about 1 p.m. and said, uh, told her about the assassination of President Kennedy. She immediately turned on her TV set, and, and Oswald came through the door and rushed by her, going to his room in quite a hurry. Roberts was sure she saw and heard a police car stop and honk the horn outside of Oswald's room right after the assassination. While Oswald was in his room, a police car from Dallas Police Department pulled up, and Ms. Roberts was no namby-pamby. She was a confident witness whose testimony revealed was certainly exactly what she saw. And she was asked that a police car pass the house and honk. She said yes. When was that? He came in the house. When he came in the house? When he came in the house and went to his room. You know how the sidewalk runs. Well, right in front of the door, there was a police car stopped and it honked. 
I worked for some policemen, and sometimes they came by to tell me something that maybe their wives wouldn't want me to know. I thought it was them, and I glanced out and saw the number, and I said, oh, that's not their car. Well, she didn't know who was in the car, but it wasn't her friend's. And she went on to testify the number of the car she saw was 106. And shortly after the police car honked, Oswald left the house. Well, that raised a serious problem for the authorities to explain because Dallas Police Department denied they had any cars in that area anywhere near the time of 1 p.m. on November 22nd. And her testimony posed additional problems because the time frame in which she placed Oswald leaving her house made it difficult for him to have been at the scene of the murder of Officer Tippett just a few minutes later. A couple of minutes later, Tippett was dead and Oswald was accused of that crime. But the Tippett crime scene was over a mile away and was established that no buses had come by during that time frame. So what happened as a result of those disparities between her testimony and the official version? Well, after testifying in Dallas in April 64, she was subjected to intensive police harassment. They visited her at all hours of the day and night, contacted her employers, and identified her as the Oswald Rooming House Lady. As a result, she was dismissed from three housekeeping and nursing jobs in April, May, and June of 64 alone. It's actually fair to say that Ms. Roberts was probably driven to her death by all the harassment. Relatives reported that right up to her death a year and a half later, she complained of being worried to death by the police. She said, every time I'd walk out on the front porch, somebody was standing in there with a camera pointed at me. They had me scared to death. Well, the case very closely relates to the Kennedy assassination. Yet another very obvious case of the powers that be intimidating and harassing a key witness because her testimony didn't fit with the official version of events. As far as her death, it appears to have actually been a heart attack, though it could actually have been the heart attack gun. So it's virtually impossible to determine the cause, but her relatives noted her deteriorating health as a direct result of harassment. Now, there are many who are divided about whether to classify this as murder or natural causes, but it is another clear case of obvious and intentional witness intimidation. Well, Let's talk about Al Guy Bogard. Cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. Official verdict, like so many others, was suicide. Now, he was a car salesman who witnessed Lee Harvey Oswald, an Oswald impersonator, test drive a car at high speed. And that was significant because a real Oswald reportedly could not drive, as I said earlier. Seems like a setup to establish something about Oswald's history. This was referred to in intelligence parlance as creating a legend because the person also made the specific point of talking about Russia and telling Bogard, in no uncertain terms, he couldn't afford the car at the moment but was expecting coming to a large sum of money in the very near future. He also specifically made the comment loud enough for others to hear and recall that maybe he'd have to go back to Russia to get a car. Well, Bogard remembers writing the name down on a business card, Lee Oswald. When he heard Oswald's name on TV as a suspect in the assassination, he was sure it was the same Oswald, and he then tossed the card in the garbage. 
FBI, of course, heard about that and became interested, wanting to know why he threw it in the garbage. You know, the, the real Bogart question is why did the FBI go through a trash dumpster to find a Bogart business card in which he wrote the name Lee Oswald? Now, if Oswald himself had written it, would be another matter, but it just doesn't make any sense. Except the FBI left no garbage dumpsters unchecked. They were determined to find that card. Well, what that card did was clearly establish that the real Oswald was somewhere else on that date and time. But the card was actual physical proof that somebody impersonating Oswald was at the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership at the same time. Now, according to historians, Oswald was clearly alibied for the afternoon of November 9th, which again pointed to there being an imposter. The business card that Bogart wrote the name Lee Oswald on was the hard evidence of, of the imposter's existence. And that's why Lawrence called it in. Also explains why the FBI just combed through the dumpsters in search of that card. It would be one of some, a few of the hard evidence items they could get. Without the card, as we know from other instances where real evidence was flim-flammed or people saw things that were, but were wrong, it could easily have been stated that Bogard was wrong. It actually waited on a custer named uh, perhaps Lou Osborne, and in the confusion and tragedy of the moment, he mistook Lee Oswald for Lou Osborne. Who amazingly enough, did Strike uh, have a peculiar resemblance to Lee Oswald? Well, if they could find the car, that would prevent that, and therefore Lawrence called it in, and the FBI looked high and low. But apparently, at least for what they said, they didn't find the card. So Bogard was subjected to uh, those Cinco-like interviews, including one in the cells of the Dallas jail prior to his convenient suicide in February of 1966. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the reference to Nosinko, that was a brutal interrogation of a Russian spy suspected of being a double agent. Uh, there was so much obfuscation and elimination of unwanted evidence that... Uh, Walt Brown, who's the historian that wrote about it, called his book The War on Omission. After the Kennedy assassination, when the case obviously should have been investigated to de determine what wrenches actually saw, instead those interviews were obviously structured to avoid certain facts and are noteworthy for what they did not cover. There were clearly orchestrated interviews conducted by the FBI. Nobody ever asked, for example, where they thought the shots came from. And attempts by authorities to marginalize certain individuals should also be uh, suspicious in their own right. For example, the FBI clearly attempted to marginalize the testimony of Arnold Rowland, who told him that it was certain that he saw a man in a six-floor window school book depository that he could not identify as Oswald. Now, when Rowland didn't see, was an identifiable Lee Oswald with the gun, because he didn't see that which had to be there and because of that, the FBI sent a bevy of agents scurrying to interview anyone who could state for the record that Roland had a nasty habit of lying or making things up for the sake of getting attention. Well, if Roland wanted attention, he could have made himself instantly famous by simply telling the FBI what they wanted to hear. That it was possible that it could have been Oswald who he saw with the rifle. 
But to his credit, if there be credit, he didn't because he knew it wasn't true. Now, the FBI has gained the reputation of being just one step above the Keystone Cops. But they were particularly inept when it came to investigating the assassination of President Kennedy. Now, Bogart is maligned in much the same manner as Rowland was. He wasn't asked to identify the man he saw because he positively identified him. He wasn't taken to a lineup, and subsequent to this, he was given a lie detector test. He was beaten severely by individuals unknown and re-interviewed by the FBI several times, including an interview held in the Dallas Police Department jail cells on the date of September 17, 1964. It wasn't clear what exactly drove Bogard to commit suicide, if, in fact, he did commit suicide. It is clear he was bullied around by the FBI, and as he put it, uh, people were out to get him. Well, the FBI, by all accounts, just like an episode of CSI, they searched high and low to find that business card, but they never did. Instead, they found Bogart by the side of the road. Dead. Now, it appears he committed suicide. His first cousin, Jimmy Harper, found the body. And though he didn't provide information on getting death by something other than suicide, his cousin did say Bogart knew people were out to get him and may, I stress may, have taken his own life for that reason. Well, clearly, this was another case of intimidation of a witness. But uh, since the FBI did it, uh, yeah, all's fair. They had the job of proving Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President Kennedy. And they were going to allow nothing to get in the way of doing that. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. And the end of our segment of Kennedy Murders. This is the fifth installment. And when my new book comes out, we'll see what new things have turned up. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.